Good morning, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm so glad you're here this morning, and I'm glad to be here with you. I'm Shelley Davis. Let me introduce myself. If you're new to Women in the Word this semester, I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And you are the faithful remnant of uh, spring semester Women in the Word. (laughs) You know, spring is such a busy, busy time for all of us. I know y'all are busy. I'm busy. Uh, And it really is hard to finish what we start out with such good intentions with in January, isn't it? You know, we all start out with that. We don't know what life will um, have in our path by April. But I'm here to say that um, I've been part of Women in the Word for a lot of years. And for those of you that are able to be here to the very end, I can almost guarantee you that God is going to speak to you in the next four weeks through His Word. Because that's what He does, isn't it? We open up His Word and we stay in it. And He has a special message and a blessing for each one of us. So I can guarantee you that's going to happen. And I just thank you for being those kind of women that are able to uh, make this a priority in your week because it is not easy. So, And I'm glad to be here. There's no place else I want to be this morning. Now, I will admit that being with my grandchildren would be a close second. But other than that, I'm glad to be here today. I um, had a praise this morning, but I wanted to save it and share it right now because it's a big praise. And because of that, I'm going to show you a picture on the screen. My um, son and daughter-in-law were reunited a couple of days ago after his deployment in Afghanistan. He's based in England. And this, uh, yeah. And um, uh, Okay, Rob, you can take it down. But the cute thing about this picture that I love so much, and she emailed it to me uh, right after he landed. They're based in England, so I haven't got to see him yet. But she's only 23, and she's been alone in England while he was in Afghanistan. And his commanding officer um, called her and said, come here, I want to take you out on the tarmac and let you meet the plane, his plane, the second he gets off of it. And then the CO took the picture for them. So uh, I thought that was uh, just a praise and an answer to prayer because I've been praying for both of them. God is good. God is good all the time. God is good. And I want to thank each one of you that has prayed for me and for my family. I appreciate that. Now, I know there are many of you out there that have military Um, family members, and I want you to know I'm praying for you and uh, for your family members also. And as uh, women of God, I just want to encourage us, each one this morning, to continue praying for our military. It is such a crazy world, and they are standing in the gap for all of us. So um, thank you for praying. Thank you for praying for me. Um, Okay, let's jump right into Isaiah, these last uh, ten chapters. Turn with me to Isaiah 56. We're going to do a big chunk today. And while you're turning to Isaiah 56, I just want to share with you what Isaiah's overriding theme is in these last 10 chapters. These last 10 chapters are really about Israel's future transformation from a nation that has failed miserably failed in their attempts to lead a righteous life in their own strength. And 
God is going to transform them. And we're going to, Isaiah is going to talk a lot about that in these chapters, into a people that have a godly righteousness, not out of their own strength, but out of God's strength. Into a people that have a personal relationship with God instead of a checklist of religious rituals to take part in. Um, You know, Israel has made some incredible journeys in their day. Most of us are familiar with uh, the journeys that Israel has made. But in these last 10 chapters, Isaiah is going to tell them about their most incredible journey yet. In fact, it actually is Israel's final journey. It's their journey on the road to true righteousness, which is, for the very first time, going to allow them to internalize the law that's for them been an outward, external form of worship. And they're going to do it because God himself makes it happen. Isaiah has shown Israel in these first 39 chapters that we've studied. Think back to when Deb taught us those first 39 chapters. He's going to show us that um, righteousness, conforming to God's power, uh, to God's standards in those first 39 chapters is not something Israel did very well, did they? When we think back to those first 39 chapters, it wasn't what they could do by themselves. In fact, as they've tried to do it, apart from God's strength, they've fallen so far into sin and apostasy that all he talked about in those first 39 chapters was the judgment that was going to come on to the nation of Israel in the form of the Babylonian captivity. Now, the next 15 chapters, chapter 40 through 55 that we just finished, God tells Isaiah, God tells them through Isaiah that they are going to be redeemed from captivity and eventually from sin. But it's not going to be in the power of their own strength, but by the grace of God and the free gift of salvation that he has to offer them through the suffering servant, the Messiah. You know, God is going to redeem them through Cyrus. When Lynn was teaching uh, one week, she said, I'm so tired of talking about Cyrus. But week after week, God would talk about how he raised up Cyrus, who was going to go in, um, apparently not because he really wanted to, but because that was God's direction. He was going to destroy Babylon. The nation of Israel would be released, and they would return to Jerusalem. So he was going to free them, first of all, from uh, Babylon, but more than that, God was going to redeem them from sin by sending the Messiah. So as we begin to talk about their their transformation from living a way of life in their own strength to living uh, life God's way and God's grace and through God's power, we really need to start by defining the word righteousness. You know, it's one of those nebulous theological words that's kind of out there. But righteousness is what God wants for his people, to live a life demonstrating righteousness in the world. Because when Israel does that and when we do that, live a life that demonstrates righteousness in the world, people see it and people notice it and people say they're different. That's what God wanted for Israel, for the world to look around and say the nation of Israel is different because of the righteous lives they lead. And that's what he wanted wants for us too. The Hebrew and Greek word for righteousness actually means um, action in conformity with an accepted and approved standard. Now in the scriptures, of course, that standard is always God himself. 
So biblical righteousness that we're going to be talking about today with the nation of Israel and in our own lives is used to mean action in conformity with God's standard, which is God himself. Righteousness is an attribute of God's holy nature. Psalm 119, 137 on your verse sheet says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. And Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. In fact, I could spend the rest of um, our half an hour together reading verses that talk about God's righteousness. Not only is it an attribute of his character, but as you can see, God um, expresses his righteousness in his actions. Uh, The word of God is an expression of God's righteousness. His love for all of us is an action that expresses God's righteousness. It's not just who he is. Righteousness is how he acts. And God loves righteousness. Psalm 33:5 on your verse sheet says, "The Lord loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of his unfailing love." The earth is full of the righteousness that is an action that God makes out of his character. Now, if you were part of our study of Deuteronomy, we did a great study of Deuteronomy a few semesters ago. Uh, You'll remember that God had established a standard of righteousness for his people. Um, It's a standard that we've seen here in our study of Isaiah that they haven't been able to meet. But let's look back at a verse in Deuteronomy that really um, kind of defines what that standard was. 6:24 and 25, he says, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. You know, God gave Israel his standard of righteousness through Moses, which was the law. And he did it knowing they were going to fail if they did it in their own strength. Um, And we see that they have as we keep reading through Isaiah. That's exactly what they did. But, you know, God didn't give them this to say, um, to make them failures, to say, "Uh I knew you couldn't do it the way my boys would do to each other when they were little. You know, that kind of, "Uh God didn't do it for that. He did it. He did it to draw them into dependence on themselves so that when they would see that I can't do this alone, I need to fall on my knees before the living God and let him help me do it. That's why he did it, to draw them into a personal relationship with his righteousness and to live out his character in their lives. An easy definition of sin, um, a short definition of sin, is rebellion that springs from pride. When the nation of Israel, um, through their pride, decided to be self-righteous, to live out um, righteousness as they saw fit in their own strength for their glory, that rebellion is what has caused them to fall into sin. Um, the same thing is true with us. When we back away from an uh, intimate relationship with a holy God and do things our way for our glory and our strength, we're rebelling and we will fall into sin. 
Isaiah has some great wisdom for Israel today in these chapters about how they can make this final journey that they are going to make one that demonstrates God's righteousness through God's power in their lives. So let's look at chapter 56. We're going to just move through verses. I'd love to just look at all four chapters straight through today, but uh, we'd be here till next Thursday. So we're going to start with Isaiah 56 verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing evil. When Lynn spoke last week, she told us that, um, she told us about Isaiah's message in chapter 55, which was awesome. And it was that God's salvation is a free gift. There's not a thing that any of us can do. It simply involves turning to God and receiving pardons for our sins and experiencing that life change or transformation that comes from that experience as a result of our new relationship with the living God. You know, no one can earn salvation Israel couldn't do it, and we cannot do it. And that is not what Isaiah is recommending here. He's not recommending when he talks about keeping the Sabbath and the law that they earn their salvation. These righteous behaviors that Isaiah is talking about here are not conditions for salvation. Rather, they are the result of understanding our salvation. For Israel, these righteous actions the Sabbath and keeping the law, were meant to be evidence in their belief in the one true God that had led them out of Israel, that had given them the Mosaic Covenant, that had taken them um, on that journey into the Promised Land. And these righteous actions of keeping the Sabbath and refraining from evil should always be the fruit of our personal relationship with God and the result of his blessing in our life. We cannot earn our salvation from righteous living. Instead, it is our belief in the one true God that should place our feet on the beginning of our journey to righteous living, of wanting to know his character and of demonstrating it every single day. Those scriptures we read demonstrated God's righteous character. That's what he wants for us, that our everyday life would demonstrate those actions. Romans 12, 1 We looked at it in your homework. It's a great verse. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In 1 Corinthians um, 6.20, this is always a verse that just kind of gets my heart. It says, You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The road to demonstrating true righteousness in our lives, godly righteousness, um, actually begins with belief and understanding. We're not going to get there. Israel was not going to get there until they really believed God was who he said he was and they understood what that meant in his life. When we believe that God is our creator, that God is our refuge, that God is our deliverer, that God is our savior, and we understand what that means in our life every single day, then our response should be nothing less than a desire to live life that demonstrate righteousness, simply to give him the glory, because that's what he deserves. Okay, let's look a little further in chapter 56, verses 3 through 8. Let no foreigner 
who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let not any eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. In Israel's past, God had previously excluded foreigners and eunuchs from public worship with Israel. I think he went back to some verses in Deuteronomy and read about that. And it wasn't because they were inherently evil that those classes of people were always evil. At that time, it was simply because of their ancestry. They were not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or It was about their personal history in the case of the eunuchs. God had put a fence around his chosen people, Israel, to protect them as his chosen people. Uh, He'd given them specific instructions on how to worship as his chosen people as a protection, as part of his plan. And these two groups were simply not his chosen people at that time in history. And that's an important thing for us to know here. They were not his chosen people at that time in history. But here in uh, these verses, Isaiah tells Israel that the future is going to be different. The future is going to look different. In the future, those who had previously been excluded are now going to be included. In the future, those who had been ritualistically unacceptable are now going to be spiritually acceptable. And you know, this is news that's going to uh, blow Israel's socks off. Um, It's news uh, of a new reality that's going to be shocking to them, something very unexpected. And because of that, in verse 4, he prefaces the truth that he's telling them here by saying, this is what the Lord says. And he does that because he wants them to know Hey, people, this is divine revelation. This isn't my personal opinion. This isn't just because I want to be inclusive and uh, I don't want to leave anyone out. This is what God's plan is in the future. I think these are great verses of hope and encouragement. That's what they were meant to be for, uh, certainly for us as Gentiles and people whose personal history maybe didn't match up to what they thought God um, had in mind here. The eunuch who has demonstrated righteousness in his life that's spelled out here simply out of a love for God. God says here is going to be rewarded with an eternal reputation far greater than if he had had biological children. And I love it that in the book of Acts we actually have an example of that. If you remember, we don't have time to turn there, but it's Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian eunuch um, is sitting along the road reading the scriptures and God sends 
Philip, I believe, to the eunuch. And the eunuch is actually sitting there reading Isaiah 53. It's just such a great passage to go look at uh, when you're in Isaiah. And the Spirit of God prompts Philip to question him about it. And in this conversation, Philip shares the gospel with him and the eunuch believes. The eunuch believes. And there's a pool by the side of the road and he stops and is baptized. You know, God has blessed this eunuch and put it in our Bible so that we will know that story. Um, He's blessed him because of his, he began, he's begun his journey of righteousness by belief, by belief. And um, he's blessed far longer by this beginning his journey of righteousness than he'd had biological children. I mean, just think about it. 2,000 years later, we are sitting here talking about the Ethiopian eunuch and how he came to faith. What an amazing, eternal reputation that is that God has given him simply because of his righteousness that was displayed through his faith. God also has the ability to bless foreigners or Gentiles, which is what we all are. If you're not um, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, then you're considered a foreigner or a Gentile. He has the ability to bless all of us that come to believe in him and to seek him and love him as described in these verses. There's another Old Testament example of that in the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile. Ruth was a Moabitess. Um, And yet, because she demonstrated um, godly righteousness in her life, through God's strength, he blessed her. And Ruth, the Gentile, the foreigner, the Moabitess, is the great-grandmother of King David. Um, She's been given an eternal reputation also. You know, but more than that, Isaiah's revelation to Israel right here in these verses is that God is going to open the road of true righteousness um, to all now who come by grace through faith. It's going to be open to Gentiles as well as Jews. The road is no longer simply about your ancestry, but all about people whose faith in God places their feet firmly along the road to righteous living. Okay, let's turn over to chapter 57 and let's move on and look at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 57. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, those whose name is holy, I will live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. These are great verses. I loved it. It was so poetic, the high and lofty place. I just kept reading it over and over again. Um, I don't know whether you've been in an airport recently, but if you have, you know that they're constantly on a loudspeaker um, giving you instructions, giving you information about what group of people is supposed to go where, and because you go there to whatever gate or whatever, you're going to end up at a certain destination. Now, I've always been so deaf that I could sometimes hear that there was somebody talking on a loudspeaker, but I could never really understand what they were saying. So what I would have to do when I am traveling is I think, okay, are they talking on a loudspeaker? And then I have to begin to ask people around me, okay, what did they say? You know what I've discovered? 
No one can hear what they're saying on the loudspeaker. You know, I just keep walking around. I don't know. Yeah, I heard that, but I have no idea what um, what they said. Um, and that's why at an airport, if you'll pay attention, we all just stand around like sheep without a shepherd until someone finally gets up and moves, and then we all jump up and follow them and think, we must be supposed to wait in line here. And who knows? They may have all said, I was at the airport one time when we had a tornado, and they were all saying, go to the bathrooms, you know, but we were all standing at the gate because that's what we thought they were supposed to do. We couldn't hear it. Isaiah is on the loudspeaker for God here in these two great verses, and he's telling Israel that there is an actual road. He's talking about the road here, and that road has a destination. Um, And he also tells us who is going to arrive at that destination. Of course, the near future prophecy, you know, when we started Isaiah, we talked about the fact that there was going to be near future prophecy, things that were going to happen for Israel in the next couple hundred years, and then there was going to be distant future prophecy, things that were going to happen at the end of time. The near future prophecy of Isaiah right here, as he talks about this road, is that God is going to prepare a road that will lead them out of captivity in Babylon and back to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the temple and he will dwell in it and they can go there and be with him and worship him. That's the near prophecy that he's talking about. But really, the greater meaning in this is the far distant prophecy he's talking about where God does have a road for his people, a road that's going to lead God's people straight to him in the millennial kingdom, the more distant future of the millennial kingdom. And you know, it is true, ladies, that Jesus is going to return and his feet are going to touch down at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem when he does. And um, after he judges the nations, he is going to live in Jerusalem with his people, the nation of Israel, for the next thousand years. That's incredible. It is a truth. Their ultimate destination along the road of righteousness is going to be living in the high and lofty place with, um, with their God. Now, even though he's a majestic and a holy God, verse 15 tells us he dwells among his people to encourage them and to enable them. That's why Jesus is coming back and living with um, Israel and all of us that are believers in the millennial kingdom. It's going to be to encourage us and to enable us. It says here, revive the spirit of the contrite and the lowly. One resource I... um, read, and I thought this was interesting, It called verse 15. You may want to go back and spend some time in verse 15. The finest one-sentence summation of biblical theology in the Bible. And I don't know whether I agree with that or not, but I thought it was pretty interesting, and you may want to go back and find out why they said that. But I want, what I want you to really notice here is the righteous character of those who travel the road to the dwelling place of God. It's not the proud that are going to end up in Jerusalem with Christ in the millennial kingdom. It's not the rich or the famous or necessarily the Pharisees or those whose prayers are so much um, uh, more revered than the prayers of the rest of us, those who stand and give those pious prayers in the scriptures. It's going to be those with a humble and repentant heart. That's who's going to dwell with God at the end of this journey along the road to righteousness in the millennial kingdom. Our God is a majestic and a holy God, but he dwells with the repentant 
and the humble. Psalm 138, 6 on your verse sheet says, Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. And Psalm 18, 27 says, You rescue the humble, but your eyes watch the proud and humiliate them. You know, humility is understanding who we are in light of who God is, and only those people that have hearts who realize who they are and have hearts who really understand that our God is a majestic and a holy God are going to be able to stay on this journey uh, without falling off of it, of demonstrating righteousness in their lives. It is going to take humility every step of the way to journey um, into the millennial kingdom and arrive at the feet of a righteous God. Okay, look down with me to verse 18 and 19 in chapter 57. It says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Isaiah continues to talk about Israel's future here. Uh, we already know that Israel's failed to, miserably to conform to God's standard of holiness in the past, but the future is going to be different for Israel. It will be different not because Israel is finally going to get it right. Oh, gosh, they have finally figured out how to do it in their own strength. But it's going to be different because God is going to intervene. Isn't that true in all of our lives? When we finally think, oh, wow, I've gotten, um, I, I, I finally accomplished this. It's not because we did it. It's because God was so gracious that he was willing to intervene in whatever situation we were in. God sees Israel's sin, and he knows how ill and how weak they are when it comes to the attraction of sin. He knows they've lost their way, but he also knows the plans that he has for them. He also knows the power that he has to accomplish those plans, and only a powerful God could do what he's going to do. He has the power to heal those that are trying to walk the road of righteousness, um, and they're so wounded they can't take another step. He has the power to heal those. He has the power to guide those who seek the road of righteousness and become lost, who um, just can't figure out whether they turn right or whether they turn left. In his power, God is going to guide them. He has the power to restore the comfort to Israel that they've had in the past with their God. Uh, They're going to reach their destination and have the comfort restored to them that they had in their um, early days of their relationship with God. God has taken the initiative with Israel to provide the suffering servant that we've talked about. He's taken the initiative to bring the Messiah because of his great mercy. And when God's people repent and believe in them, he's going to heal them and he's going to guide them, and he's going to comfort them along the road to living out his righteousness in their lives. Romans 1.16 on your verse sheet says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. This power of God 
for the nation of Israel as they uh, believe God and believe in his Savior is going to finish their journey for them. Only God, only our God and Israel's God makes the journey to true righteousness possible through his mercy and through his power. Okay, now let's glance over at chapter 58, verses 6 through 9 together. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk. A simple definition of worship, I think this was in your homework, is um, putting God first and loving God most. Um, unfortunately for Israel, we all know they hadn't been putting God first and they certainly hadn't been loving God most. And their acts of worship had been hypocritical. They had been motivated by a desire to really elevate themselves or simply to um, check it off the list. Uh, What God is really saying is that self-denial for the sake of elevating yourself is really not self-denial, is it? If we're willing to give our money so that people will pat us on the back, if we're willing to um, feed the hungry so people will know that we volunteer one day a week at the food bank, if we're doing those acts of self-denial, in my book that's really self-promotion, isn't it? It's um, self-righteousness, not... God righteousness. And there's really not a lot of self-denial involved in promoting ourselves. The road to demonstrating righteousness in all of our lives is only traveled by those who understand and who practice self-denial for God's sake alone. That you give your money or you give your time or you give your wisdom not because people are going to like you or think you're awesome, but because people are going to know God is involved in their life. Because people are going to think God is an awesome God. Um, these verses share some incredible blessings for those who travel this road, truly helping others in need, doing away with injustice, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, um, housing the homeless simply as an act of putting God first and loving God most. For those travelers who practice self-denial, for God's sake alone, God is going to provide light and healing and guidance and answered prayer. Go back and spend some more time in these verses and look and see all of the blessings that come from practicing self-denial for God's sake alone. Verse 8, which I love verse 8, it says, Your righteousness will go before you along the road. And you know what that really means, ladies, is that 
when righteousness for the sake of God alone, when self-denial for the sake of God alone is what your motive is, then that righteousness is going to essentially be your calling card. You know, back in the olden days, they would, if they were going to visit someone, they would drop off their calling card to announce that they were going to be coming later so the person would know to expect them. Verse 8 tells us that our acts of righteousness godly righteousness are going to be our calling card. And before we even arrive at our destination, which is the presence of the living God, our righteousness is going to arrive before us, that God is going to expect us because he's heard of our righteousness. So how great would that be to arrive in the throne room at the feet of a mighty God and have him say, I know you, your acts of righteousness came in before you. That would be um, what God would expect of us and want of us and desire for us. Let's keep reading. Let's read verses 15 through 20 in um, chapter 59, actually. Chapter 59, verse 15 says, Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased. There was no justice. I've lost my place. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Um, Eight or nine years ago, I had the opportunity to go with a group from Christ Chapel that was going to the Ukraine to teach a family life conference in a Ukrainian church. In fact, um, Anjanette and Jeff Walshauser were with us on that trip. It was a great trip. We were hosted by uh, Constantine, a local pastor and his wife, Angela. And while we were there in the Ukraine for the week doing this conference, they would drive us around in their cars. And Constantine would drive the men in his car, and the ladies would follow with Angela in their car in her car. And several times while we were driving around um, the Ukraine in and out of Kiev and this other small town we were in, the police would stop us and pull us over. And Constantine would get out and talk to them. And when that happened, Angela would say to us in the car, now don't say anything. We don't want them to know you're Americans. You know, so everybody just sit quietly and let's just see what happens here. And then Constantine would talk to this guy for a while And you know the end of this story. Finally, he would give them money, and the police would, you know, let us uh, go. It was a really creepy feeling to um, know that the police, uh, the ones who should have been protecting us along the road, the journey that we were making, how I have come to count here. You know, if I'm driving at night, I think, oh, good, there's a police car, you know, next to me at this red light. Um, It was a really creepy feeling to know that was not the case. We did not have the police 
protecting us. In fact, they were the ones that were preying on us. Um, okay, Israel, Isaiah tells Israel in these verses that as they travel along the road, they do have a protector. They have a divine warrior that um, as they journey from a people um, down this road, as a people that has made their way uh, from sin to a righteous people, a people that are redeemed, that they are going to be protected by the strong arm of the Lord. In fact, there's nothing more powerful that could protect you along the road than the strong arm of the Lord. Like a warrior, like a divine warrior, God is able to provide both physical and spiritual salvation for Israel. In verse 17, he says he's actually wearing righteousness and salvation as his battle dress. And those are what he's going to give to Israel, righteousness and salvation, so he can care for his people. But he's also wearing vengeance and zeal. So he's going to protect them along the way uh, as he gives them righteousness and salvation the divine warrior is going to protect them with his vengeance and his real. The road to righteousness for Israel will not be without its challenges um, and enemies, but the divine warrior will deliver them uh, in a, a manner that verse 19 tells us the whole world will revere his glory. Okay, now some of you that have heard me uh, teach over the years know that I come from a family of fishermen. I have a husband and a son and a dad that are all fishermen. And uh, one of the things that they all like to do as fishermen is fish at night. And if you've ever been in a boat at night, you know it's the scariest thing you've ever done. It's like an episode of The Deadliest Catch. You, can, you can't tell where you're going or who else is out there. And the only way you can do that is someone stands in the front of the boat with this big Q-beam light and points out the buoys that navigate you around or, you know, anything else in the way. Isaiah is fixing to stand in the front of the boat here throughout these uh, four chapters. Periodically, he stands in the boat with a big um, light and points out the roadblocks that are going, that have deterred Israel in the past and could deter us in the future as we journey um, along the way. And we're going to take just our last five minutes here to talk about these roadblocks. Turn with me to uh, chapter 56, verses 10 through 12. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. Come, each one cries, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. You know, shepherds are always critical to the help of the sheep. In fact, wherever the shepherd goes, the sheep are going to go also. In Israel's case, their leaders here are described as blind and lazy and selfish and greedy and drunkards. Um, pretty amazing stuff to have God describe your leaders that way. They obviously had no relationship with God for the most part. And they certainly don't have any concern for leading the nation of Israel down the road to true righteousness. You know, leaders were key for the nation of Israel, and their failure contributed to Israel's fa failure. And the same is true for us. And so that big spotlight of Isaiah's right here is shined on 
our leaders. You know, in our churches today, you will not see a healthy church that has corrupt leadership. So our job um, today, and what should have been Israel's job, is to take a good look at your leadership and to make sure that it's not your leaders that are a roadblock on your personal journey to righteousness. Okay, flip over real quickly to 57, verses 3 through 7. And he says, But you, come here, you sons of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Whom are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick your tongue out? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. We don't have to read all the way down to verse uh, 13 to get the message here. The Israelites are not only completely involved in idol worship and decadence here, one of the worst things they're doing is they're mocking God. They're mocking God. In fact, it actually says here that their behavior is sneering at God and sticking their tongue out at him. That's really that's what the scripture says. Now, I don't know if any of you that are moms have ever had a child stick their tongue out at you, um, but I can safely say that mine only did it once. <laughs> um, and... God has been more merciful than I am. God has been more merciful than I am. But he has obviously seen their behavior. And we all know judgment is coming. We talked about that for 39 chapters. Judgment is coming. In fact, look down to verse 12 where he says, I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not benefit you. You know, what he's really saying here is that you have no righteousness, but I am going to expose your unrighteousness. And just as your righteousness came before you into the throne room, your unrighteousness is going to bring you into the presence of God's judgment. Mocking God is definitely a roadblock on the road to righteousness. We have one more in verse 58, in chapter 58, 2 through 5, where it says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me um, for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And then in verse 8, skip down to there. Um, actually, don't skip down to there. That's the wrong one. We're going to... Um, we're going to stop right there. Many of the Israelites were relying on their ritualistic practice of the Mosaic Law to satisfy God. They thought, hey, we're not concerned about our hearts or our relationship with God, but we've gone down this list and we've checked it off. So it really doesn't matter how else I live my life. Uh, it doesn't matter that um, I'm sitting in the pew on Sunday morning and then on the way home I'm blasting my family or gossiping about my neighbors or that sort of thing. Um, the Israelites are deceiving themselves. They are not fasting to mourn over their own sinfulness, which is what God had decreed fasting for. They were fasting to display their self-righteousness, to feel good about themselves um, and have others revere them. You know, pride goes hand in hand with self-deception. When we're prideful, we are deceiving ourselves about 
what the truth is about who we are and who God is. You know, we keep elevating ourselves instead of elevating God. Pride goes hand in hand with self-deception. And it will do exactly for us what it did for the Israelites. It will lead us into self-righteousness and derail our relationship with a personal God. So pride is definitely a roadblock on the road to righteousness. Okay, our final one is in chapter 59, verses 1 through 3. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. And then drop down to verse 8. It says, The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. You know, Israel is now so oblivious to their sin and so blind to evil that they don't even realize why God isn't rushing to their rescue. I mean, they're thinking, Oh, why isn't God coming? Why isn't, you know, they're not stopping and saying, Why would God want to come and rescue you? Um, The road they walk, according to verse 8, is not the road of righteousness that will lead them to the millennial kingdom and a relationship with God, but it is actually a twisted and a crooked one that is never going to get them the perfect peace that God has for them. I don't know whether any of you have paid attention to the trial of that young American college student, Amanda Knox, in Italy. Uh, She's a young college student that was convicted of murdering her roommate in a pretty decadent um, scenario, a pretty decadent turn of events. And if she is indeed guilty of what they uh, convicted her of, it really is a picture of a young woman who became so blinded to sin and evil that was in her life and all around her that she didn't even recognize it until the road became so crooked that it's led to her own destruction. You know, Isaiah's message to Israel in these four chapters is one that is timely for us. And I think it has a great application to our life. Also, God had chosen Israel to be his people, just like he's chosen each one of us here in the room today. And he chose them so that they could demonstrate his righteousness in their lives before the world. And the world would see the difference. In these chapters, Isaiah has given us some great examples of true righteousness. What it looks like when we do um, act the way God acts. He's also given us some great examples of self-righteousness, of doing things our way and our strength for our glory that's going to lead everyone to God's judgment. God wants to redeem his people. He wants to transform their lives. Their lesson and ours um, is that we start down this road through belief, to true righteousness through belief. We start down it through belief. We stay on the road to true righteousness through our humility, our willingness to walk that path because we know who we are and we know who God is. But the real message that Isaiah wants Israel to finally get, it is God and it is only God that is going to transform your life. And it is God and only God that has the power to transform my life. Um, It is God's mercy and his grace and his power that enable us um, to walk that whole road 
until we reach his presence in the millennial kingdom. Without God's enablement, all our efforts are going to lead us down the same road Israel went, the crooked road to self-righteousness that deserves God's judgment. And what we need to ask ourselves today by way of application is, and I think we need to do this, I need to do it every single morning when I get up. What road am I going to walk today? Am I going to walk the road of true righteousness um, which is traveled in God's strength for God's glory? Or am I going to walk the road of self-righteousness which is by myself and for myself? Pray with me. Father, we just um, are in awe of you this morning. We thank you for your word and for your truth. We um, just bless you for who you are. I praise you for um, these women, for their love for you and their love for each other. I just ask that we would carry these truths out into a world and that you would give us all the grace and the mercy and the power, the belief and the humility that it takes to be different from the world and to show your righteousness to a world that needs to see it. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.